Hi, and welcome to the EUC podcast from the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University. I'm your host, Kyle Thiessen. Today's episode will be the first of our EUC book club series, where we'll be highlighting books and research put out by our renowned cast of faculty members. To celebrate World Bee Day, we'll be featuring A Garden for the Rusty Patched Bumblebee, written by our very own Sheila Cola, alongside co-author Lorraine Johnson and featuring illustrations by Ann Sanderson. This book serves as a useful and inspiring guide to the plants and pollinators native to Ontario and the Great Lakes region, helping people to make meaningful changes in protecting and promoting threatened species and habitats. be reflecting on the book with one of my fellow students, and later on I'll be joined by Professor Cola herself, who will be sharing some of her thoughts on the text and the issues surrounding pollinators and native plants. That's all coming up on this week's episode of the EUC Podcast. Joining me in the studio today is fellow work-study student Sophia Colalilo, who is a fourth-year student in the Environmental Arts and Justice Program. Sophia, welcome to the book club. Thanks for having me. Of course, and thank you for coming on. So I know we've both enjoyed the book, and I'd like if we could start off by having you share some of your highlights that you found while you were reading. For sure. One of the things I really loved about this book is that it was written in a way which allows those with little to absolutely no knowledge on plants or gardening to be able to understand how important native plants are to our ecosystems. I also really like that Lorraine Johnson and Sheila Cola emphasize the impacts that native plants and pollinators have on us humans. I also really appreciated that the book's creators have included a lot of useful and beautiful pictures and illustrations since they express a lot more than just words on their own. Also, since it was written in a way where it's very easy to digest the information, I felt like I wanted to read and learn a lot more about a topic that I really didn't know much about. Yeah, I think it's really helpful that the authors have made this content so accessible for your average reader without a background in entomology or horticulture or even in gardening. And how do you think that this book will change your perspectives going forward, both from the knowledge that you might have gained as well as from the actions that you think you might be able to take given this knowledge? I think that the book really allowed me to see how connected I am to native plants based on all these co-evolved relationships that have been generated for thousands of years all around me. It wasn't something that I had realized before reading this book. The images that are included in the book also helped me to visualize some of the species that will be helpful once I start to plant some of these native plants in this little flower bed I have in my backyard. I felt motivated to do this gardening because as they talk about in the book, planting these plants both helps pollinators but also helps the fight against climate change. And even though I might just be doing a small little action of planting native plants in my backyard, hopefully all of us that read the book and listen to this podcast can create collective action to make important changes on these issues. All right, well, thank you again for being on the podcast, Sophia. I hope this inspires some of our fellow students to pick up the book and take some action for pollinator species as well. I really hope so too, and thank you so much for having me. Now, I would like to bring in our featured author this week, whose work focuses on pollinator conservation, endangered species, community science, environmental policy, and bumblebees. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Would you please introduce yourself? So my name is Sheila Cola. I'm an associate professor in EUC and a conservation scientist. So I'm curious, to get us started, what were your motivations in writing this book? 
Yeah, so Lorraine Johnson and I have been friends and colleagues for a number of years, and we've collaborated on uh, different like articles and smaller pieces of literature together. That's kind of how we got together. We were trying to think about ways to communicate complexity and nuance and to bring in climate and uh, sort of larger environmental issues into this kind of simple um, environmental issue of saving the bees that's been, you know, hashtagged and been oversimplified in a lot of ways. Uh, so we tried to come together to do something like that. And then um, Anne Sanderson, who did all of the artwork, we actually went to undergrad together at University of Toronto uh, in our zoology degree. So I love her work and um, have known her for um, a long time now. And every time I have anything that, you know, requires art, um, I always go to Anne. And she was so generous to, to help us out with this book. And she did so many beautiful drawings, which I think um, is a lot more effective um, and interesting to look at. And drawings really do draw people in and make it kind of like a coffee table book too that you can flip through. Yeah, it's great to hear that you've been able to work with your colleagues for such a long time, and I love the illustrations that Anne Sanderson has done here. And you mentioned that there's been a bit of an oversimplification of many of these ideas around pollinators, especially with the ways that the Save the Bees campaign has been going around social media. Would you mind laying out a couple of these issues, which, of course, in reality are very complex, and maybe add some points of nuance for us? Yeah, so just for example, um, with one of the EUC... um, PhD students, Nissa Tripp, we did a survey of 2000 Canadians to understand what they know about bees. And more than half of them thought the European honeybee was a native wild species in Canada. More than 85% believe that pesticides and the loss of flowers were the main threats to bees, which is what you hear in the news all the time. And it's true that pesticides are not doing bees any favors, but that's actually more of an issue to the honeybee industry because Honeybees are brought into degraded agricultural landscapes, so they get exposed to a lot more pesticides than the native bees do. Um, Like a cornfield that's treated with one pesticide versus another versus no pesticide is still a horrible place for a bee. (laughs) Um, And there's a lot of cornfields out there. So actually, for our native bee species, the major threats are introduced diseases from managed bees and climate change, also habitat loss uh, for some species. But when we talk about bee conservation, we're talking about hundreds of different species. Uh, There's 865 species of bees in Canada. The European honeybee is not only not native, it's not in decline. You can order hives if you wanted. Um, The number of hives in Toronto has increased dramatically over the past 10 years because people think they're helping by bringing in this non-native species. And because they make honey, which none of our native bees do, they actually extract more resources out of the environment than native bees do because they're storing food for the winter, whereas all of our native bees sleep for the winter. Uh, So there was one study in Utah that studied one apiary and found that a single apiary took the amount of pollen that 3 million native bees would have used. Um, And that's just looking at pollen. So when you think about nectar, it's probably even more because of the honey that that they store. Um, So they're taking huge amounts of nectar and pollen out of our landscapes, especially in cities where there's so few flowers and so little green space. So um, the potential for them to have an impact is quite large. And there's a new study out from Montreal that showed a correlation of native bees declining with the number of urban beehives that have increased. So probably the biggest misconception is what everyone knows about honeybees is probably not that true. 
And people think that helping honeybees somehow helps native bees, which is also untrue. Uh, so one of the main things about this book is to try to show people how much there is that we don't know, how many species there are, how many relationships there are between plants and different insects, and how we just need to nurture these relationships, even though we don't fully understand them because there's so many of them and they've been obviously um, happening for many, many years, uh, co-evolving. Um, so yeah. Yeah, it's definitely true that these misconceptions are not just limited to social media. You also find them in news media and even in our sort of popular conceptions of bees and other pollinator species. And certainly one thing that floats around, which you and your co-author bring up in the book, is the idea of insects as simply being pests to be controlled or eliminated. How do you think these sorts of ideas come about and what can we do to reframe these pollinator insects? Yeah, I mean, I thought those annoying yellow jacket wasps, which are also invasive species that go after your hamburger when you're, you know, at a picnic were bees until I was in my twenties. Um, <laughs> I grew up in the city. I had no idea that we have not only hundreds of species of native bees, but also hundreds of species that na of native wasps that don't bother us at all. They're off killing spiders and cicadas and things and aphids. I think just people not understanding, um, the number of species, how much biodiversity we have and what they're all out there doing. Um, and just assuming that it's all, you know, stuff out to get us is probably um, one issue. Uh, we're not, I mean, it, I think it's getting a little bit better in schools, um, especially on the bee front. I think people are talking about native bees a little bit more, but I think that's just the number one step. Like people just understanding how many different species there are and what they do. And I know it's possible because children learn dinosaurs by Latin names and they learn whether they're vegetarian or carnivorous or whatever. Um, so if, you know, a five-year-old can, you know, say all these multi-syllable names for sure, people can learn that there's, you know, carpenter bees and leafcutter bees and uh, mining bees and honeybees and bumblebees and they all do different things um, and they're all important in their own different ways and even if they're not important they still deserve to exist um, <laughs> even if they don't benefit us directly in ways that we know. Definitely and I'm curious if you had any thoughts about our lack of understanding around insects and how that relates to more broad issues about reframing relationships with nature. So I think in general, most people know that we need to have native pollinators if we want to have not only intensive agricultural fields pollinated, but also urban gardens and cities, rooftop gardens, um, community gardens, and the wildflowers and, and, you know, natural spaces. I think if you go through, you know, how much birds rely on seeds and fruit and as do bears, um, I think people start to see that, you know, when you lose this group of insects, then there are potential cascading impacts. I think what I try to talk a little bit more about now is climate resiliency, because there might be some people who think that we could just, you know, rely on a honeybee or a couple species of bees, and um, that'll be fine because they're just pollinators, they all act the same way. But um, with climate change ongoing, the more species of pollinators we have in our system, the more resilient our system is. So if we have a spring storm, which are, ex you know, expected to increase with climate change, where things start to bloom and then they freeze, then yes, for sure, like all the spring bees probably will freeze, they might die, but then we still have all of these other species that come out in June or July or August. Um, they all have different flowers that they go to, different places they nest. Some might be more susceptible to, you know, flooding than others. Uh, some might not be affected at all. 
Um, so it's just a way to really build in resiliency for our food systems and also our natural environments to try to keep every single species there if we can. Generally, humans are pretty bad at replacing nature or trying to make things that might replace components of nature, like um, hummingbird feeders, you know, spread pink eye to hummingbirds, uh, bee condos get full of fungus and are used mostly by non-native bees and woodpeckers learn that there's lots of food there. So then just go to town and eat all the bees that you've been trying to like attract. In general, we can't replicate nature very well. So yeah, we just try to focus on trying to support what we can through biodiversity. Uh, climate resiliency also benefits if there's plant biodiversity as well. Uh, so a lot of our native plants are more adapted to local weather. So they might be a little bit more resilient to things like spring freezes and uh, warm summers and, you know, cold winters and being buried under snow or what have you. So definitely it's another way to build in resiliency is to have as many different types of native plants as possible. And then I think we mentioned this a few times, but we actually like don't fully understand <laughs> all the different relationships and connections. So in a way, it's just kind of encouraging us all to just, you know, trust <laughs> that there are relationships there. And to nurture them and not try to like overly manage or assume we know or uh, just be super hands-on. And one example of this is the No Mo May campaign that's kind of going on. So the idea that somehow if you just don't mow your lawn for the month of May and let the dandelions bloom, that you're somehow saving the bees. And that's just, there's so many things to unpack there. Um, <laughs> first of all, dandelions are non-native species as are lawns. Dandelions have really low uh, protein available. So for a spring food, they're actually pretty bad for pollinators that come out of hibernation and need protein right away. In fact, there's a study that showed that if a bumblebee queen was only fed dandelion pollen, she like would eat her own eggs because she was so protein deficient, which meant she didn't even like produce any offspring. So even if you see bees on dandelion, that doesn't actually mean that it's a good thing. But if you have things like willows, which is one of our most important spring plants, like pussy willows, other types of willows, the bees actually did really well if they're fed that pollen and that has a much higher protein content. Um, in addition, dandelions have something called allelopathic pollen, which means if a pollinator takes their pollen and puts them on like another native plant, it disrupts that plant's ability to get pollinated and to be successful. So there's things happening at this molecular level that most people will not be able to observe. So we just kind of have to just trust that by tending and nurturing these relationships between native plants and native insects that we're going to somehow be contributing to, you know, the sustainability of, of this area. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And a lot of us do want to make an impact on these issues, though perhaps hummingbird feeders and bee condos might not be the most effective ways to do so. But you do highlight a number of habitats that people can help create, which people can see through the visuals and descriptions in your book. And I'm curious, for those who have limited access to green space, for example, condo residents or people in shared accommodations, they may feel that they are unable to create new pollinator habitats because of their space constraints. What suggestions do you have for folks in that situation who want to get involved? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we did try to focus on that because a lot of the focus does go on to like homeowners who not only have the space, but also might have the time and resources to make a beautiful pollinator garden that, you know, is also pleasing to the eye. But walking around my neighborhood, I did see someone who had put just like a shelf over their garbage bins and then had all these like 
buckets of native plants. And I put a picture in the book of that and it looked, it looks awesome. So that's one option. They didn't even have, you know, green space, but they created some green space. And there are things that work well in balconies, but for people who don't have either of those options, just going out and being volunteers, stewarding your local parks and ravines. Uh, Toronto is so lucky to have such amazing green spaces going throughout from north to south. And they are being attacked by garlic mustard, by dog strangling vine, by periwinkle, all these invasive plants that really do choke out um, native flowering plants that pollinators need. So even just spending a few hours every season, like pulling some of that from High Park or from, you know, Taylor Creek or wherever else is so helpful. And then the other thing that anyone can do is participate in our community science programs like Bumblebee Watch or iNaturalist, because we actually do use that data to help us uh, figure out where rare species are, um, endangered species, where, you know, figure out which um, threats are, are, are hurting different species. Uh, based on the photos that we get. So anyone can help us collect data, and that's a really useful way to help as well. So as the weather's getting warmer, more of us are going to be going outside into our local parks and gardens. And I was curious if there's anything you'd recommend we keep our eyes out for in terms of native insect pollinators. People are generally surprised um, that what we know to be a bee is not actually representative of what most of Toronto's bees look like. Um, so for example, if you think of like a typical honeybee, you think of a stinger, maybe yellow, black stripes, lives in a hive, makes honey. But most of our bees are actually silver or green. <laughs> They're not black and white striped. We have a, a large group called the sweat bees and they're almost all metallic green or silver. And there's like over 100 species in Toronto of those. And then most of our bees can't even sting or if they do sting, it doesn't hurt. Uh, like I said, none of our bees make any honey. Uh, they all sleep for the winter. Um, most of them actually live in the ground. So when you see like a little hole in the ground with some dirt, that could be a bee living there. Most of them are solitary. So it's just like one mother taking care of babies in there. And it's not a whole hive. Of the 865 species of um, native bees that we have in Canada, about 42 of them are bumblebees. So those live in hives. Uh, much smaller than honeybees. We're talking about maybe 100, 200 individuals as compared to 10,000 to 60,000 honeybees in a hive. But that means there's over 800 species of bees that don't live in hives um, at all. They're just solitary. So those either mostly live in the ground, but sometimes they also live inside stems. So if you open like a raspberry stem or teasel or some other kind of large pithy plant, you'll sometimes find bees nesting in them. So that's why we also tell people to try to keep things a bit messy because bees nest in dead stems from last year. So if you're too eager to clean up everything that's dead in a location, you're probably throwing out baby bees that are sleeping inside stems. Yeah, that's really good information. It's definitely easy to associate the process of creating new garden space or habitat with supposedly cleaning up the old dead foliage. But those decaying plants, as you said, serve vital functions in their habitats. Now, do you have any recommendations as far as which plants are great places to start when building up new habitat? Things like echinacea, woodland sunflower, um, anything in the mint families, rose families, like they're pretty easy to grow. And if someone still wants to have lawn, and I understand that people want to have lawns, I'm not here to vilify lawns because I have kids and it's nice for them to have, you know, somewhere outside to play, right? Planting like a single service berry tree or like a single blossoming fruit tree is, you know, adding a lot of flowers to a landscape. <laughs> like when that tree blooms, like there's hundreds of flowers on there. 
even if it just means planting a single tree or like a few shrubs along the edges of your lawn, like I think that's really beneficial as well. Um, so I don't think people should feel bad about, you know, wanting to have some grass as well. Just try to think about if there are ways that you can share your space a little bit. And some of them can be super low maintenance, like planting a single tree. That's good to hear because, yeah, it can be intimidating to start these sorts of projects. So knowing that there are a range of possible interventions is really helpful. Are there any plants or pollinators that you think need particular attention right now? For the bumblebees, which is what I kind of focus on, um, what they need in particular are things that bloom early in the spring and then late into the fall. Uh, So goldenrod has a really bad rap because it blooms at the same time as ragweed in August. So everyone thinks this like yellow flower that Sneezy was walking around with in Snow White, which absolutely did not cause his allergies, um, is somehow causing allergies. <laughs> um, but anything that's pollinated by an insect can't cause allergies because the pollen is like thick and heavy and sticks to like the insect's body. Whereas wind uh, pollinated plants like ragweed, for example, do cause allergies because people are breathing them in. So anyway, there's a lot of misconception about, about that. So goldenrod is pulled out often because people think it's a weed. People think that it causes allergies, but it's actually in the fall, one of the most important plants for not only bees to stock up um, before like their fat reserves before they hibernate, but also monarch butterflies before they start flying over the Great Lakes. So yeah, just really thinking about having those food sources that are first thing when, when insects come out of hibernation and then the food sources that are there like September, October before they go into hibernation. I think those are kind of often forgotten about. I guess they're called shoulder seasons because everyone thinks about, you know, June, July, August as when to have their pollinator garden. But in terms of starvation, uh, the critical periods are actually on either sides of those months. Yeah, oftentimes we're thinking about pollinators only in the summer, but it's good to be reminded that they need food and habitat beyond those months from June to August. So as people are preparing to start planting, I was wondering if you could share some of the more accessible ways for people to get the plants needed for their new habitats. Yeah, if people go into like the Toronto Gardeners Facebook group or Project Swallowtail, uh, there's a ton of like seed swaps that happen and like plant sales that are just like community members who just do it out of passion. It's not like they have a business. I do find Urban Harvest as well is a Toronto grower and they have pretty reasonable like packs of seeds. So if you start things from seed, um, things are obviously more affordable than buying them when they're more grown. But yeah, I'd say just getting involved with local groups like that and just showing up. And as you start even volunteering in community gardens or like I live in Danforth East and there's Access Alliance there that has an amazing rooftop garden that you can volunteer in. Then you start just like collecting people's like extra stuff. People will have, you know, some extra seedlings of this that they can't fit in their garden. And yeah, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there. You just have to kind of get connected into your local growing groups, but people are generally pretty generous. And I think it'll become easier to find as time goes on. And finally, what are some of the ways that people can extend their knowledge around these sorts of issues further? Are there any courses that you might recommend from the faculty for people who are interested? I teach ecosystem services, which is a third year course, and then also protected areas management in Las Nubis. Uh, Las Nubis is a pretty amazing place to learn more about insects because they have all sorts of different things there. Ontario is too, but (laughs) Las Nubis is particularly fun. 
using different apps like iNaturalist and Seek and going on Bumblebee Watch, which is a website, you get to learn what you have around you a little bit more easily. A lot of them use like AI now to help you kind of identify. I also helped write a book called The Bees of Toronto, which is a free PDF if you just Google that. And it, it has pictures of all the different bees that we have here in Toronto. So that's another resource that people can use. Well, Professor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And it's been great to hear from you. Thanks for having me, and I hope you enjoy habitat gardening and learning more about your local bees. And our listeners can find A Garden for the Rusty Patched Bumblebee from booksellers online or through the York University Library System. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the EUC Book Club. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one.